I think we've made a huge mistake turning this all into queer theory as a queer theory movement rather than rather than um, a science-based medical understanding of gender dysphoria because it's because there's not everyone is ever going to agree with queer theory um and so it it seems like we're, we've built this whole castle onto sand, right? Whereas if, like, I know people don't, they say, well, we don't want to pathologize this. We don't want to stigmatize it. But there's lots of conditions out there. Um, and our our goal is to, you know, to educate and, and destigmatize certain conditions, not completely deny that the condition exists. And I, I just... So I'm just curious. Like, I think it would do, I think it would do all of us a lot of good if we could just land on... What do we know about this? What is it as a clinical condition and not define it according to any political movement or, or ideology? Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Down. My guest, whose voice you just heard, is mental health advocate and clinician Aaron Kimberly. I'm going to introduce Aaron properly in a second, but first I want to offer some context for this conversation and explain why I'm releasing it this week. If you're familiar with this podcast, you know it's not one of those podcasts with the big monologue before the interview, but I am going to do a sort of mini monologue to frame this up. So I'll say that if you want to go right to the interview, you can skip ahead now about eight minutes. Okay, so last week, there was an article in the New York Times that probably didn't make a big splash among the general reading public, but there was a huge deal for people who closely follow the subject it was covering. That subject is one I've discussed on the podcast several times, treatment protocols for young people who identify as transgender and come into gender clinics seeking things like hormone blockers or cross-sex hormones. The reason this article was significant was that it was essentially the first time a news organization as influential as the New York Times um, had, at least in a reported article, not in an opinion piece, lent credence to the idea that a treatment model for trans-identifying youth known as the affirmative care model is possibly not the best approach. Now, by affirmative care, we're talking about the idea that people, including children and adolescents, who come into a clinic saying they have gender dysphoria and are, in fact, transgender, should be taken at their word and prescribed hormone therapy without extensive and, in some cases, really any kind of psychological assessment. The article, which happened to feature the psychologist Dr. Laura Edwards-Leeper, who's appeared on two editions of this podcast, reported on the fact that more clinicians are beginning to push back on this model when it comes to young people. In fact, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, or WPATH, which is the organization that sets the standards of care for doctors and therapists treating transgender people, recently released a draft of an updated book of guidelines, which for the first time included recommendations that adolescents have a comprehensive psychological assessment before being put on a medical path to transition. Again, if you don't follow the subject closely, that approach might sound like a no-brainer. But in fact, those are fighting words to a lot of trans rights activists 
And since those activists have largely set the tone for mainstream media coverage of this issue, it's a big deal that the New York Times ran the story. Although I should say that the story also included remarks from clinicians who see required psychological assessment as an undue burden on an already distressed population. The article was pretty straight down the middle, um, which, when it comes to the subject, is actually pretty radical. Anyway, that was a very long windup to introduce this week's guest, whose voice you heard at the top. He is Aaron Kimberly, and he is a mental health clinician based in Canada who has worked with trans youth in gender clinics and elsewhere and is himself a trans man. Aaron had nothing to do with the time story or the WPATH guidelines. He is not even a member of WPATH, he tells me. In fact, we recorded this interview late last year, and my plan was to release it as part of another three-part series in the vein of the gender nuance series I did last fall. Now, the question of why I wanted to do it that way um, is relevant, but also one I'm still not sure I'm able to answer. This subject has so many moving pieces and so many underexplored complexities and, yes, nuances that I somehow kept feeling like releasing a single episode wasn't going to do justice to the issue. Releasing just one episode in one week somehow wouldn't cover everything. But I think part of what was going on was that um, there were people around me in my real life, parents and teenagers alike, who were experiencing this issue in very different ways and experiencing my coverage of the issue despite the excruciating care I took with it, in ways that caused them pain. So I guess I thought that if I covered every possible base, inoculated myself against every potential criticism in the form of three episodes dropping in one week, that some of that pain would be lessened. But the truth is, I think it was really my pain I was trying to lessen. I didn't want people to think I was a bad person. I didn't want friends of mine whose children were trans-identified to think I was questioning the legitimacy of their child's perspective or questioning their parenting. It hurt me to think that I was hurting them. So um, believe it or not, I tried to veer away from the topic. I was aware that people were starting to wonder why I was so, uh, some might say, obsessed with the topic, especially because it doesn't touch me personally in any way. I'm not a parent, for starters, but even though obsessed may be too strong a word, um, it's certainly fair to say that I am fascinated by the current gender discussion. And since wide swaths of that discussion have less to do with trans people themselves than with a concept, a pretty abstract, often almost magical thinking kind of concept that has captured mainstream culture even science and medicine, in a way that I think is pretty much unprecedented in modern history, I do think it's a subject worth talking about, even talking a lot about. And that is why I decided to post my interview with Aaron Kimberly this week. The New York Times piece was noteworthy, but it was also notably timid, equivocal, I would say, and even inaccurate in places. It's stated as fact, for instance, that detransitioning is quite rare, or actually in another equivocation, um, that detransitioning is, quote, thought to be quite rare. 
We know that detransitioners are not rare at all. Just type that word into YouTube and you will learn quite a lot. You'll also, by the way, learn a lot from the reader's comments on the article. Um, So I would encourage you to read those after you read the piece, if you read the piece. Anyway, I'm releasing my conversation with Aaron because he is an example of the very sort of clinician who is speaking up against this affirmative care approach. As a trans man himself, he can talk about what he had to go through to complete his own transition 15 years ago. He talks about having a rare intersex condition and how that did and did not factor into his decision to transition. Um, He also, like a lot of us did in the 90s, studied some queer theory in college, and he is very good at explaining how gender theory got tangled up with medicine and why so many well-meaning people have gone along with ideas that on a very basic level make very little sense. It's the kind of conversation that reminds me that it actually does make perfect sense to be fascinated with this topic. It's exactly why I love doing this podcast. And with that, and you can stop skipping ahead now, here is my interview with Aaron Kimberly. Aaron Kimberly, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Megan. Thanks for inviting me. You're a mental health clinician. You've been talking about these issues, active in this space, as we say. Why? Why have you become vocal? I'm the least likely person to be vocal about this. I don't, you know, I anyone that knows me knows that if I'm speaking publicly about this, because I'm usually a very private person, um, usually pretty, pretty quiet and stay out of the politics. So the fact that I'm stepping forward, I think, to anyone that knows me is pretty significant. And it's a it's a bit of a long story, but I'll try to kind of just capture the the highlights. So I, as you said, I am a trans man. I transitioned um, about 15 years ago and and really haven't been involved in the trans community. I was initially, as I was going through the initial medical parts, you know, in, in support groups and stuff, just because I needed that support. But for many years now, I really haven't been involved. I've got my, my tiny circle of friends, but I'm not involved in the politics. And I've moved away from the big city and um, have just gotten on with my life. And was working in general mental health um, for the last 15 years. And it was only recently that I took an interest in doing a bit of trans health um, because I was working at the time for a youth clinic. And we were seeing um, a lot of youth coming to our clinic asking for trans medical services. And our physicians in the clinic were only with us very part-time. A couple of them... uh, um, a physician and nurse practitioner did did have an interest in supporting the population, but they, they're certainly not trans specialists, so they didn't want to dedicate their entire practice to the population, but they were interested in learning more about it and supporting um, these youth. But because they had very limited hours at our clinic, um, and the assessment process is, is quite quite labor intensive. It takes some time. And, and of course, that, I was thinking that it was the system was more or less the same as when I went through it. So when I went through it 15 years ago, there was an assessment process that took several months. And, and so I was under the impression that that was still what was being done. And our physicians just didn't have the capacity to do that over several months. And so I said, well, as a mental health clinician with a lot a lot of experience with assessment, at least the mental health parts, I could um, I could assess and come up with a report um, and put that time in as a full-time staff and support our physicians in that way. So they were very excited about that plan. 
So that's what we set out to do, with, was that I would coordinate the service and do the bulk of the information gathering um, for the physicians. And so it, it was a very efficient way of doing it. And we were you know, working as a multidisciplinary team. And I was really excited about it because our clinic is multidisciplinary. It was, it was um, we had the ability to support youth in a lot of different ways from housing, social services, mental health supports, primary care, sexual health, all of those things we could address and build a really comprehensive care plan for these youth to support them. So we reached out to the uh, provincial health authority who oversees the education for trans care services and, and asked them for some training. And they came out twice um, to do training with us. And it became, and I was involved in um, a clinical listserv and a mentorship call that happened once a week. Once a week. Um, so we were really wanting to do the work well. And I was excited about it because I thought, okay, here's my chance to kind of look behind the curtain and see what this is all about. I was curious about, you know, what is gender dysphoria and what is known about it and um, really wanted to just understand that and, and was excited about it. And these have, these were things, sorry to interrupt you. First of all, what year, what year was this? What How this long ago last are we year. talking? This was oh, the, just, well, just last yeah, year. I mean, it, we, the clinic opened about f- four years ago. Um, so we first had Transcare BC out to do a bit of training with us um, at the beginning, but that was very basic, just kind of, I would describe it as cultural sensitivity training, just, um, you know, trans 101 of making the clients comfortable. But when we started doing the clinical work, we really wanted a deeper dive um, into that. So we invited them out again to uh, to do some some deeper training with us. But they it ended up being a very similar, what I would call cultural sensitivity training, priming as to the, you know, the language that's used and make, making people feel comfortable. But, but I was and- finding it... Sorry, yeah, go no, ahead. actually, no, I just, again, I don't mean to interrupt you, but when you say you wanted to find out what what was behind gender dysphoria, that sort of thing, had that not come up when you transitioned? Was that not yet sort of in the in the lexicon? Yeah, it was about a year ago that I, that I, that I started to get involved um, in, in supporting the physicians um, just because of the volume of clients. Uh, we needed to do something. There weren't, there weren't a lot of... Um, of trans medical services in in our area, so these youth had really were saying they had nowhere else to go. But I was becoming concerned by just how different the system of care has changed since I went through it. So, like I said, I was expecting it to take several months to do the assessment, and that's what I had been planning for. And I was being told, "Well, well, no. I mean, we don't. That's not really how we practice anymore." That depending on how much time you have to spend, you know, in a, like if you only had 10 minute clinic appointments with someone, it might take longer. But if you could sit down with someone for, for an hour, it could maybe take a single visit to do these, to do, do these assessments. And um, we were given a checklist to go through as a one page checklist. So what I understand this to mean now is, is that the model of care um, that was being presented to us as, as standard practice um, is what, I would call an informed consent model, or or some might call it a harm reduction model, um, where really we're just, there's lot, far less emphasis on any kind of diagnosis to diagnose gender dysphoria um, as a condition of any kind. It's now framed more as a human rights issue and bodily autonomy. So anyone for any reason who wishes to start hormones and, and um, surgically alter their body, it's, it's not really our job anymore. Um, 
to to question that or to go exploring for motivations or to diagnose. It's more about they have the autonomy to identify however they wish and to access health services however they wish. And so the assessment that we were doing was only supposed to be for the purpose of determining whether they had the capacity to consent. And were these people under 18? Uh, That clinic was um, teenagers um, and up to early adulthood, up to age 25. So kind of some of them were sort of older adolescents. We didn't do any hormone starts. We didn't do any puberty blockers. Our physicians didn't feel comfortable doing that. They just didn't didn't know enough about it. So we didn't do anything as far as medical interventions for for the younger youth, like in the 12, 13, 14 age range. But we were doing hormone starts um, on older adolescents and and then surgery referrals for over 18. Okay. And when you say older adolescents, still, are we talking about people who are over 18? Like, or, Because I think there's a uh, lot under of- Under 18. Under 18. Because I think a lot of people say, well, you know, oh, there's this, there's this kind of social panic around- young kids walking into clinics and being prescribed cross-sex hormones at like Planned Parenthood or something, but that doesn't happen. It's not true. It's not true. You, you, you're saying that this was going on. People under 18 getting cross-sex hormones. Yes. Yes. Older adolescents, according to the, to the model of care, um, older adolescents can be started on cross-sex hormones. And we, and we were doing hormone starts for about age 16 and up. So I, I started, the more I was learning about this new model of practice, um, the more confused I was feeling and, and, you know, just, and I'm not trying to point fingers at any particular individual because it seems to be much more of a systemic thing that's happened where this model of care is being pretty widely um, promoted and practiced. But I started to just become very confused because it, it, and I'm not an expert on these things. I was le- I was trying to learn about this, um, but it, it it just I was having trouble reconciling the clinical model with my experience as a trans man and in the community, and and just the complexity within the community and the layers of of different sort of me- mental health presentations, and hearing people over the years say things like. I have a friend who transitioned even before I did, about 20 years ago, and he's now saying um, that he still goes by male pronouns for the time being, but he says that he regrets the transition, that he feels that it had more to do with the sexual abuse he experienced um, as a child and um, and, and a dissociative experience as a result of that trauma. Um, So I hear stories like that. I hear stories about people saying, well, I just did this for political reasons um, because they were really into queer theory. I mean, I have known of queer theory professors who really identify with the idea of female masculinity and and want to masculize their bodies as an expression of queer theory. I've heard people say that. They're actually medicalizing. Sorry again to interrupt you, but I want to make sure I'm understanding this. So, because this does sound like the kind of thing that is this hyperbolic, like the people get all like up in arms, like people are just doing this to make a point. But you're saying people have medicalized because of, of just to make some kind of ideological statement. That's, I mean, that's how she expressed it in the community was, you know, she, I don't want to give any away any identifying details, but she was very, very knowledgeable and very interested in 
had dedicated a lot of her energy into queer theory uh, and really identified with the idea of female masculinity. So didn't identify as as a man. I mean, to what extent she may have had a legitimate gender dysphoria, I, d- I don't know. But that's not what she was. How she was presenting it in conversations, she was presenting it as she really believed in this this theory. And others said, you know, I've never experienced gender dysphoria in my life, and and I lied my way through the assessments. So I don't want to cast the entire trans community in a bad light. I mean, even someone who maybe never had gender dysphoria and lied about it, I'm sure they have their motive. And I would be very curious, you know, what that what that motive is and how that what purpose the transition served for them. Because I've certainly met lots of people with legitimate gender dysphoria as well who have felt some relief from the clinical condition and the end, like myself, I, I mean, I definitely had gender dysphoria from a very early age and I've never bought into the, the, the queer theory stuff. I mean, I learned about it a little bit as, as a 20 year old, but had long re- rejected it and left it behind. And I just see transition as treatment for a condition and it was helpful. Um, so, so there's, there are, I don't want to, frame this as as gender dysphoria isn't real because it is but i i just know from my experience in the community that there's there are a lot of different drivers for why people want to medically medicalize their bodies and transition gender dysphoria being only one of those reasons and so when i have all these young people coming to me looking for support knowing all of that background information, all the stories that I've heard from hundreds of trans people people over the years. I really wanted to take my time to get this right with these youth and really explore all of these things. And and some of these youth that we were seeing are very complex, you know, maybe have have autism diagnosis or ADHD diagnosis and um or or trauma backgrounds. And I really felt like it 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 was it was weighing on my conscience. It did not feel right for me to just rubber stamp them and move them on to permanent medical um, alterations to their body when there was that kind of complexity. And and I just wanted wanted to get to know them. But then the accusation came about that I was gatekeeping clients, which in the pol- in the political world and those that advocate for the informed consent model, that's a very it's like a sin in the trans community. You're not supposed to gatekeep because that's somehow oppressive and, and harming people. And who was accusing you of that? Was it your colleagues? Was it people in the community? Where was um, it, it was some from? community activists and um, not colleagues within organi- organization, but the you know the provincial health authority and and um, activists in the community. Um, so the pushback didn't come from like the youth that we were working with. I mean, the youth themselves seemed pretty happy as far as the feedback that we got. They felt happy and comfortable um, with us, and um, you know, so it's, so it's disheartening that, that now you know they're boycotting the clinic. Um, I'm not even there anymore, but they continued to boy- boycott the clinic, um, even though those youth, I think, were were being well served and uh, and seemed happy with the service. So yeah, that's interesting. So it was it wasn't the clients themselves who were complaining. Have you seen cases where young people come in and say they need to transition immediately and you feel that that is the right instinct? Is there ever a scenario in which that could seem plausible? There were people that yeah, for sure there were young people that came in and they want, you know, the hormones as soon as possible and you see that they had that that drive. 
to do that. And and I would just explain to them the rationale for why I think it's important to, to slow down and just talk about these things. And, um, you know, and, and so one of the things that I, that I said to some of them is, you know, we're not just planning. This isn't just, this isn't just a hormone readiness assessment. We're not just planning for you to start hormones. We are planning for the big picture. We're planning for you to, to succeed with your goals. We're planning for you to be a healthy, happy, productive human being. So we want to get to know you well enough to do a really individualized care plan for you to address all the things that you're struggling with, um, if there's anything that we can support you with. Um, so I would encourage them to just to just slow down that we weren't trying to, you know, gatekeep in the sense of saying you're not who you say you are. We just want wanted to get to know them well enough to make sure that, that we were supporting them properly and, uh, and safely. Um, so most people, when you when you had provided them with with a rationale of just developing relationship with them, you know, not they might still might not have been happy to have slowed down a little bit, but we were able to maintain um, a good relationship with them, and um, they were happy in the end. Okay. And what is your background as a, a clinician? What kind of mental health providing were you doing prior to this? So I've always worked in mental health. I'm a, I'm a registered nurse, but I've always specialized in mental health right from um, nursing school onward. And um, so I've been working 15 years and I've worked in a number of different settings. Uh, I started in a psychiatric stabilization unit in a hospital, but that was becoming more and more like forensics and um, and things like substance use more so than than mental health. I saw that change over the couple of years that I was there. And so that started to interest me less. Um, so I left there and um, I was doing some some casual work on the other inpatient units. And I ended up landing in the Provincial Eating Disorders Program, where I started as a staff nurse. Um, so we were running groups and providing medical support. Um, and, and that really interested me. I really liked the team there and I really liked the clients. And as a nurse, it was, it was, it, it was an interesting field because it, it was a merging of mental health and medical. Um, so the, I was there for a number of years and then was in a leadership position for a while with that program before I, th I then moved on to working with um, youth in, in the clinic. And my role in, in working with youth was more general mental health as well. I've heard you talk about how when you were working with the with the clients with anorexia that a lot of the nurse and the the clinicians didn't want to work with that population. Like there was almost a fear around it. Yeah, and I was really curious about that because when I was working in, in the, the general mental health units, um, there are times, because we were all one mental health program, and so there are times when one unit is short-staffed that they kind of do a shuffling of, of nurses throughout the department. And I just noticed um, a pattern that whenever that eating disorders unit was short-staffed, that nurses were really resistant to the idea of going up there. And I thought that was really I'm always curious when when I see patterns like that, like why why do they have this resistance um, to to going up on that on and working on that unit? So it was my curiosity um, that took me up there. There was a temporary posting, and I thought, well, this is my chance to go up there and to see what it's all about. And I ended up really loving it. So, what's your diagnosis? Why are they so afraid? What's going on? I still don't really know what that fear is about. Like, I don't know if it's if it's their lack of confidence in some of the medical skills, maybe. Um, 
because when nurses work in mental health for for you know many years um if you're not constantly using medical skills sometimes you lose them so that might have been part of it but some of it too might have been um some of the stigma around personality disorders maybe is would is my guess um because a, a lot of people with eating disorders um ha- also have personality disorders and there is that stigma around it so that that's my best guess hmm so at this point, were you aware of the rise in young people announcing trans identities? I mean, this cohort, I know that the term rapid onset gender dysphoria is very loaded and people really, you know, run in the other direction sometimes if you even use it. But, you know, in, in lieu of a better way of isolating that, how aware were you of this kind of cultural phenomenon around trans transgender identity i wasn't aware of the stats it wasn't until i started you know because of i was just becoming so confused by this model of care and how this happened and and what is the evidence behind this um that i started doing a lot of reading and started reading through the medical literature and and articles and and just trying to wrap my head around what's going on and um and and what is this because i i saw this on Clinical listserv, especially, there seemed to be this very deep ideological split, but only one side of that ideological split was really being allowed a voice. And I see that split in the trans community. I see that split in the community at large, that there's just very different ideological understandings um, of what gender dysphoria is and, and what is best practice. And so that's when I started to read. That's when I, that's where I found um, Dr. Lippmann's study. And it makes sense to me. I, I do think I was seeing that phenomenon in my practice. I've got four teenagers at home. I, I think I've seen that in um, their peer groups. And that's not entirely new. That um, I mean, the spike in numbers and the spike in teenage girls is, is new. And that sex ratio from, from mostly natal males transitioning to mostly natal females, that's new. But the part that isn't entirely new is people transitioning for all different kinds of reasons. I don't think that part's new. I think we're just seeing an explosion of one of those types, if that makes sense. Wait, wait, let me I make sure I understand this. So people, you're saying people have always transitioned for all kinds of reasons, but the part that's new is this rapid onset piece? I think what's new is just the explosion in numbers of that particular cohort of of clients who have been more um, socially influenced into a trans identity. Mm -hmm. So how much of this do you think comes from something like social media? I mean, I know you're not a cultural critic, but just as, as a, as a person in the world, as a professional and as a person in the world, and I I do want to get into your, your own story as a, as a trans man as well, but putting that aside for the moment, what do you think is going on? Well, I do think social media is a factor. And I mean, I, my kids are all on, on social media and TikTok and all those, all of those apps. And I've looked at some of their, you know, we monitor the, um, their accounts less as they get older, but certainly, you know, like a year or two ago, we were watching their, their accounts pretty closely and what they were posting and, and looking at and like TikTok accounts, 
there were some very strange trends that I was seeing with teen- I've got two teenage girls and um, these there's all these trends on TikTok of teenage girls uh, posting videos of themselves crying or posting video videos with all of these like kind of made up um, I mean in the case of my girls made up sort of different mental health diagnosis like i've got ocd like there's so there are these oh, social there's media kind trends. Of a, there's a tourette's thing too right i think that's a big one like yeah have, i've like, just noticed that one as well i mean yeah. one of our teenage girls she'd be in her bedroom like we'd be in the living room and we see that she's just posted something on tiktok of, of her like crying and saying oh all this 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 and this is happening and then she, five minutes later she'd come out of her room like happy and like it's it's this weird social <laughs> do they trend believe where it? is it a performance or do they really think that they have a mental health issue. It's, I think it's a performance. In the, in the case of, of like the daughter I'm talking about, it was absolutely a performance. I mean, none of the stuff that she was posting was, was true. And like I said, five minutes later after posting that she'd be out like, and she was fine and laughing and talking to her friends and, and was fine. So, and so I think what it, does she say about it? So does she admit that it's performative? Like what's she her narrative? Okay. She did. Okay. When she, when she was asked about it, it's like, yeah, I mean, she said like, it's just sort of a thing. Like it's almost this irritation. Like, well, this is just normal. This is what all the kids are doing. Right. 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 So I think they are to some extent aware that this is just a, a trend and they're trying to fit in. It's almost like a comp- competition sometimes or who can come up with the best stories or who has right. the worst life. And so, <laughs> right. so teenage trends do happen and they're strange and social media, I think has made things extra strange more so than than when i was a teenager i'm so glad i didn't grow up with social media and the social you know the the cyber bullying that happens and and things like that but uh, as far as the gender stuff i mean taking what i know from like my teenage daughters and those social media trends to and some of the just ridiculous things that they're daring themselves to do like they're daring kids to to self-harm and stuff on some of these social media accounts and um so combining that knowledge with what I was seeing clinically is that I think in the case of my teenage girls, they're, they're aware that there's a performative aspect to that stuff. But you take someone with like autism or ADHD or someone who's psychologically vulnerable in some way, I don't know that they always know that it's, that it's performative. I think some, some kids take these things very literally. And, you know, we were seeing some very lonely kids who struggled um, to fit into a peer group. And, you know, I've said this in other interviews, I think one of the the purposes that this, this queer theory culture that's developed, it, it's, it, it's an orthodoxy and it has a, a very strict set of rules. You know, you just sort of learn these certain neo pronouns and you, you do X, Y, Z and you get to fit and be a part of this social group. And I think for somebody who struggles socially, and has trouble picking up on some of the complexities of and nuances of social cues and are very lonely as teenagers when your developmental task is to fit into a peer group. I have no doubt that some of these kids were kind of saying, well, I can learn these basic sets of, of principles and, and words and, and uh, behaviors and fit into a peer group for the very first time. Yes. So, Okay. So that's so interesting. So this queer theory, it's kind of trickling down. I mean, it starts with something very seemingly complicated and abstract on an academic level. I mean, there's Judith Butler up at the top, right? So if this is like a pyramid scheme, we have Judith Butler at the top (laughs) and then, you know, various, various levels of buy-in, I suppose. 
Yeah, it has trickled down. And I've seen that kind of happen over the last 30 years. Like I studied that stuff in university and it was like kind of fun at the time. But then I, you know, it's, I found personally, it was making my gender dysphoria worse. And I picked up on that pretty quickly. So I kind of, it's like fun ideas, but I left left them behind. But I've seen culturally these ideas, you know, trickle more and more into the gay and lesbian um, and trans community. Um, it's, and it started as, as a fairly sort of fringe movement, and, and now it's completely taken over. And these very, very complex ideas, I mean, I remember reading that, reading, reading Judith Butler with a dictionary and a thesaurus beside me. It's, it's hard reading. It's, it's very dense reading, and it took a long time to to um uncode it and and get through the entire book um very good for pretending you understand it yeah made for that yeah you you sort of learn the learn the lingo and and recycle it and right um exactly but you know the way it's it's trickled into these very complex ideas have been condensed down into a political movement and and very simple messages and so when they're going into and first I, I just want to explain what the purpose of queer theory is i think that's a really important thing for 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 listeners to understand it, the way it was presented to me was we first learned about foucault and foucault um had this theory that we categorize groups of people for the purpose of oppressing them so his argument was and I think this comes from his book, The History of Sexuality, that his argument was um, that the idea of a homosexual person was an invention. Before that, there were behaviors, but the idea of a homosexual person and and a homosexual group of people was an invention for the purpose of oppressing that group of people, according to Foucault. So people like Judith Butler took those ideas, and, and the whole idea is, okay, so if that's true, that by by delineating and clearly identifying a gay and lesbian people for the purpose of oppression, if that is true, then the whole queer theory project is to create this kind of smoke and mirrors show in order to blur the boundaries around what it means to be gay or lesbian or male or female so that it, we can no longer be delineated as a clear group of people. That's the, So when you talk about queering a culture, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about confusing the boundaries between things like gay or straight and male and female so that we can't clearly point at any one group of people and say, we're going to oppress you. Oh, so it's doing away with categories. Because from the outside, it looks like a fixation on categories. It really does. I know. And, but, it, the whole, but the original purpose of it was to, was to queer these ideas of categories. It's meant to be destabilizing and, and to confuse categories. So it'll never end. As soon as we create new categories, they're going to queer those again. So it'll be this like perpetual, and we're seeing this play out, it's this perpetual destabilization of categories because fundamentally it's based on the belief that anyone that can be, anyone, there's only two groups of people. There's only oppressors and the oppressed. And the the only way the, the oppressed can escape oppression is to constantly blur boundaries. Okay. So, it, right. Like a moving target. Like if you're a moving target. Exactly. You're if you're a moving target, standards. if you're always wearing camo, right, you're, you're, then you're not going to be oppressed. But so we've, but we've taken these ideas. For, I mean, A, I don't really believe it. I think it's a very pessimistic way of, of interacting with, with human beings to always be on guard for who's going to oppress me. So, I mean, we could dissect that all we want. I, I definitely have criticisms of the theory. But 
we've packaged that down into this very simple a very simple um, politic and going into schools presenting this stuff like the gender spectrum as fact as as this this is just material reality and science it's it's presented as this is somehow scientific and and this is how the world works these kids are picking up queer theory not really understanding what where it comes from and what its original purpose was yeah and it's so you know people ask me why i'm so fascinated slash obsessed people accuse me of being obsessed with this topic it really is this this capture like how is it that this phenomenon that you just described um has been embraced by like quote unquote regular people regular elementary school teachers regular social workers people who go to get PhDs in education. How did the institutions come to be so captured by this really weird and complicated set of ideas? I'm as baffled by that as anybody, like how quickly it seems to have captured institutions. Like even the last few years, it seems to have completely taken over at really high levels of government and, you know, the UN and, and it's, it is such a strange set of ideas. I mean, I don't, and there are new organizations like like FAIR, for example, that are that are human rights-based organizations, but pushing back on some of the critical theory. So and that's a misinterpret some people interpret when you when you criticize queer theory that that they equate that with being transphobic or, or homophobic. And I don't think our, I, I don't think I as a trans I because I'm not denying that homophobia actually exists i'm not denying that true transphobia exists it doesn't exist everywhere people see it but i i do think that it's not that i don't think that oppression happens i just don't think that queer theory is an effective or appropriate um response to to true oppression and i don't think it's actually liberating us i think it's it's actually doing the opposite it's dividing people it's um attempting to to control our thinking. Um, I don't feel free as a trans man to think for myself and have the politics of my choice because I feel like I'm, you know, I'm, this theory is being imposed on me because now it's being institutionalized to the degree that it's defining what it means to be trans in ways that are imposing queer theory onto me. And I found queer theory when I studied it, I found it to increase my gender dysphoria and not decrease it. So I'm very concerned about even on a personal level, the imposition of these theories onto me as a trans man. Yeah. Well, I want to hear about how it increased your your gender dysphoria. But actually, before we get to that, I mean, it seems to me that a lot of the capture is the result of well-intended people being so afraid of repeating the same mistakes we made during the gay rights movement with conversion therapy and, you know, just homophobia pretty much across the board in mainstream culture there's you know there's a hard people have a hard time separating being gay from being trans it's all going under the same umbrella and it's really two entirely different different things it is it's it's a political strategy that we should be free to reject or accept and i i personally have rejected it but we've we've tied these theories so much into the queer or gay or lesbian or trans identity that it, we've gotten to a place where we can't critique the theory without being accused of bigotry. 
and and that's I really would that's like to see the brilliant strategy on their part. That's like yeah. bulletproof. Yeah, yeah. I mean, young, and young people, you know, when when young people identify as trans, I think they're the ones impacted the most by this because we're not teaching about gender dysphoria anymore. We're teaching about queer theory, and we've so we've completely have now defined trans according to queer theory. So I'm really concerned about these young people moving forward because every political mu- movement has an end. Like that's just historically, there's never been a political philosophy or movement that, that has remained dominant forever. And um, when these young people have, have constructed their entire sense of self on the foundation of queer theory and people start to critique that and, and see that it's not working and it's doing harm in some ways, these people truly do feel attacked. They truly do feel like their their identities and, and the whole ground is, is is falling out from under them. And I think that's why we see so much, you know, psychological instability and emotional upset as as we have these public conversations. We're gonna pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here, almost 70 of them by now. I do this show every week and I pretty much do it all by myself. That is why, as much as I'm loath to ask for help, people who know me know this, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people, novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes even just regular folks with something interesting to say, I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way you can. One way to do this is by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can join for as little as $5 a month. That gives you early and ad-free access to the show or for as much as $100 a month. And yes, people have done that. There are lots of perks at every level, including if you join at the $10 a month tier or higher, the chance to join our bi-weekly hangout where we, and that includes me, get together on Zoom to talk about a recent specific episode of the show. Joining at that level also gets you discounts on your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donation button. This podcast is a one-woman enterprise. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, secret investment cabal, or anything like that. I do it because I love it. And if you love it, or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help, actually. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word, actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking. And with that, back to the interview. So when you say that queer theory made your gender dysphoria worse, what do you mean by that? Well, first to explain what the experience of gender dysphoria was like for me. I mean, I've I've had an experience of gender dysphoria for as long as I can remember. And I had no framework in which to understand that. I really did believe as a child that I was a boy in in some way. And um, I've I now call that an error in cate- 
cognitive categorization, which is mostly an unconscious process. And, and, and it tends to start when we're about two or three. So I think that for me, that explains why I had this experience of gender dysphoria from that age. So when we think of cognitive categorization, it's, it's an unconscious process in which we just make sense of our world by, by placing things into categories, like cats and, and dogs, for example. Like, There's lots of similarities between cats and dogs. They're both mammals. They both have four legs. They both have hair. Like, but a, a three-year-old can point to a cat and point to a dog. Uh, and I don't think it's because they sat down, you know, with a spreadsheet and, and figured out, okay, what are all the differences? And, you know, they, they just, they figure it out, right? Based on what they're seeing and hearing, they make different noises and their faces are kind of shaped differently. And, and sometimes they'll see maybe uh, a, a dog that might puzzle them for a minute. And it's like, well, what is that? Is that a cat? So, so they, a dog they, that's, a dog can be smaller than a cat. It, Absolutely. It's possible. But, not, it's not but they the still, norm. So it's quite but, sophisticated. Yeah, yeah right. it's a very sophisticated cognitive process that happens when you, when you kind of think of it. But a three-year-old can do it. And so a three-year-old is going to look at boys and look at girls and try to figure out the difference between the two. And, and it is based on stereotypes. And, you know, the feminists will point to this a lot that, oh, you know, gender dysphoria is all based on sexist stereotypes. Well, cognitive categorization is based on stereotypes. It is based on just taking information and sorting it into categories. So if all the boys in our lives have short hair and all the girls in our lives have long hair, we're going to categorize, okay, if you got short hair, you're a boy. If you have long hair, you're a girl. And, and of course, it's more sophisticated than that. We're, all, we're constantly taking in new information. Okay, boys you know, do X, Y, and Z. Girls do X, Y, and Z. So it, we're, a three-year-old can, for the most part, can point at a boy and point at a girl or, or a man or a woman with, with, with accuracy. Um, but it's not uncommon for little kids to walk up to someone and say, are you a boy or a girl? And it's not meant to be mean it's it's something about that person isn't fitting with their cognitive categorizations and so they're they're constantly integrating new information into these categories and so for whatever reason as a child i had enough characteristics that i was seeing in boys that unconsciously i think i just categorized myself as as a boy and and that idea Normally, I, my understanding is that it's not uncommon for gay and lesbian people to experience that to some extent because of their sexual orientation, that as a young child, you're not going to understand yet. And for the vast majority of children with gender dysphoria, um, as they integrate more complex information into their categorization system, and then their actual sexuality wakes up, most of those kids do resolve it through puberty and just become gay or lesbian people. Um, a lot of gay and les lesbian people would tell you that, that they had some degree of cross-sex identification as children. They might have been girly boys and wore their mom's dresses or high-heeled shoes as children, and now they're just happy gay men who may or may not be gender nonconforming as a gay man. For some reason, for very few of us, um, that doesn't resolve. Even though I integrated more complex information, I'm not delusional about what biological sex is. I mean, I understand the concept of gametes. I understand the concept of, of genetics, um, but that for whatever reason, none of that corrected my own categorization of self as male. And, and so that distress as I got older and older and old, older became greater and greater and greater. And I really tried to resolve that for myself through just a cognitive process of thinking it through and, and thinking, well, no, I mean, I, I must be 
I must be female because I've got this, you know, body part. So I did try to break it all down and, and resolve it. But what complicated it for me at age 19, I, I was starting to, to be involved in the, in the gay and lesbian community. Um, and my dysphoria at that point, as I was developing a lesbian identity did start to get better. But then at 19, um, it was discovered that I had a very rare intersex condition called an ovotesticular um, DSD. So I had surgery f for a large cyst on what they thought was, was an ovary. And when they went in to remove the cyst, the surgeon said, well, the, the ovary wasn't recognizable as an organ and it wasn't, it was so damaged and, and uh, engulfed in this cyst that they just had to remove all of it. And they did a biopsy and discovered that um, it was an ovotestes. To, to what extent it was an ovary versus a testicle, I, I don't really know. But it, so. Wow. Were you, how did you feel? Were you, were you upset? Were you relieved? Was it a revelation? It was a mixed bag of feelings for me because on one hand it, it, it validated, okay, you know, because I thought, okay, so maybe that's why I always just seen, felt and seemed more masculine. And, and none of that was a performance. I mean, my entire life, everyone said, like, you look like a boy, you act like a boy, you talk like a boy. You, like, a lot of people thought I just was a boy when I was a really little kid. I'd have, I would have kids coming up to me on the playground saying, hey, I heard you're a girl, but how do you, how do, you do that? How do you look so much like a boy? <laughs> so it was very obvious to everyone around me that I was just in some way more boyish and i did have you know like some facial hair and you know very androgynous sort of appearance i wasn't very as an as a young adult wasn't hyper masculine appearing still had this this ongoing gender dysphoria and um so when i discovered that i had this this rare dsd in on one on one hand it it validated some of that for me. That's like, okay, maybe this is somehow related to this feeling that I already always had. But at the same time, started to just confuse me more about, well, what does this mean in terms of my biological sex? And so, it, and the doctor wasn't terribly helpful at the time. I mean, he wasn't a DSD specialist. He was just a gynecologist and, and um, he seemed kind of embarrassed for me. I mean, he, he told me about it. He said, this is what we found, but he just kind of, kind of brushed it under the rug and sort of said, well, I mean, it's gone now. We removed it because so, it is a cancer <laughs> they risk. They cured it. Yes. Yeah, so it's like, don't worry about it. We removed it. He sort of seemed embarrassed about me. So he seemed to more about, seemed to be just more trying to reassure me that, you know, it's okay. You're still, you know, you're healthy and we removed it. And so just forget about it. And so that I picked up on that cue that, A, this is something to be embarrassed about. So I didn't even tell anyone about it. And, um, and I believed him that it's gone, so I don't need to worry about it. And he didn't know that I had gender dysphoria. And we didn't – so no further medical investigation was done about it. And I tried to just not think about it. Um, but in the back of my mind, I was still really confused about what that meant in terms of my biological sex and, and how that related to just this sense of self that I had as, as male. And when I started reading queer theory as a young adult – so that would have been about 1993, roughly. Um, <laughs> exactly, right? The sweet spot of that. Yeah, the very beginnings. Yeah, yeah. So, so Judith Butler's book had just been published. And so I read that stuff. And, and initially it appealed to me because when Judith Butler was talking about things like, or, or Judith Halberstam is another one of the 
the writers, um, sometimes goes by Jack Halberstam. They were writing a lot about queer or about female masculinities. And, and I think that's when I first heard the term transgender as well and gender queer. So they were wrapping these identities up at that time into this queering project. But when I first read it, I thought, well, they're talking about this feeling that I, that I have, but it quickly became apparent to me, a, that those theories were making that confusion I was having about, well, what sex am I? Because the whole project of, of queer theory is to destabilize and confuse our notions of those things. It wasn't helpful for me to try to land on what does this actually mean for me um, in terms of my DSD? What does this actually mean for me in terms of my biological sex? To, to put on top of that confusion a theory that is intentionally trying to disrupt your notion of what biological sex even is. Wow. Okay. So at what point did you start thinking about transitioning? And when you say you had never heard the term transgender, I'm assuming you had, the, the, the term of art was transsexual. That's what people call, you know. I didn't even really know about transsexuals. Yeah, oh, really? Okay. I didn't even know. I didn't, none of that was really on my radar. I, um, cause I grew up in a very tiny farming community. I was pretty sheltered as, as a kid. Um, so even that the idea of the gay and lesbian community was a fairly new thing for me. And um, and I met a lot of very masculine women in the lesbian community. And that's initially how I was making sense of all of this was maybe this is just something that some gay and lesbian people you know feel and experience. And some of those women were, were physically more masculine appearing than, than I was. That's how I started to make sense of it. And, and I had never heard of anyone getting a sex change, you know, to use that old language or, or that there were transsexuals or any of that. So it, I, you know, in the cities that I was living in at the time, that, that really wasn't um, happening yet. And when queer theory became popular, there were, there was a new move, movement of drag Kings. That's, that's something that popped up was um, women, you know, performing masculinity on stage. And, and I saw that very much as, as, being a part of this queer theory movement and female masculinity and, and it was fun and playful and performative. Um, but it wasn't until I moved to Vancouver, which um, I realize now is, is kind of a hot spot for some of these ideas. Um, queer theory is, is really popular um, on the, the West coast. I had been living on the East coast prior to moving to Vancouver. And that's when I first met a transgender person for the first time, but it's still, it was a number of years before I considered the possibility of transitioning. It's, it didn't even really cross my mind. I still struggled with gender dysphoria, um, still felt more masculine, you know, whatever that means. And when you say struggled, what, what do you mean by that? Because it sounds like you were a pretty self-possessed person. You weren't it, the way you're describing this, you're not obsessed with yourself. You're not obsessed with your, your, your struggle or your gender. So like, what would be an example of something where it would feel sort of acutely painful or uncomfortable to be dealing with this? It, initially as a kid, it wasn't about my body at all. It was, so I, it was, it didn't start as, you know, people say gender dysphoria is body dysmorphia. It didn't start out that way for me. It, it really was just a cognitive process of I'm categorizing myself as male. It had absolutely nothing to do with body parts. I mean, I, I never saw little kids running around naked. This is a three-year-old 
anyway. So it, it's not like I was looking at boys thinking, well, they've got penises and I don't. Or, And I had fairly ambiguous um, genitalia because of, probably because of the DSD because um, my t- testosterone levels would have been high right from fetal development onward. So it, it wasn't based on that kind of rational reproductive categories. It was just, I just seemed to naturally fit in with the boys more easily. And so it was more about just how I wanted to be in the world and where I just felt most myself and the most comfortable is how it started. It didn't become about my body until probably starting in adolescence. And then that part intensified because at that point, as a little kid, it doesn't really matter what sex you are. I mean, kids just play with everybody and well especially back then i don't know about now but yes yeah back back in our time back in our time yeah i I mean i had tons of friends with both boys and girls and but this was before the disney princess absolutely changed everything yes yeah and it became more about my body when that because once we we became teenagers and everyone just is now boys are looking at girls as dating material, not as, as friends, right? So the, the whole social dynamic changes when you're adolescence and into adulthood in ways where I felt like, well, I just don't know where I fit in anymore then because I was same-sex attracted, um, still felt more like I fit in with the boys, but they're all acting weird towards me now. And, and so it was a very confusing time. And that's when it became more about my body because I blamed my body for not fitting into the world anymore in a way that I could just be myself. And so that started a spiral of, well, now what do I do? Like I went through phases where I tried to appear more feminine just to fit in, but that just didn't feel, it just wasn't me. It just didn't feel authentic. I just wanted to wear the clothes I wanted to wear and be myself. And so I tried different things. um, But the distress of not fitting in and being really confused about my biological sex just got worse and worse and worse. Um, and then my, so along with that, the distress about just my body, um, got worse and worse and worse. And so when I would say that it it was difficult, it was difficult because that cognitive spiral of trying to figure it out never ended. Um, and that's really hard to describe to anyone that hasn't experienced it is because I knew that I, that I didn't know, I didn't know how to call it. I didn't have a name for it. I didn't know about gender dysphoria. I, I, so I had no word to describe it i had no framework in which to understand it and i kept trying to almost obsessively try to figure out well what sex am i what sex am i what criteria should i am i supposed to use to determine that and and so that just became kind of crazy making after a while and um and then i started hanging around a little bit with the butch femme lesbian scene where people were just recognizing my masculinity and were calling me boy or calling me calling me butch and that that served a purpose for me that felt comfortable it felt good to be just recognized for and valued for my innate masculinity but it started to intensify so it felt okay within that that cultural bubble but then that it would intensify my discomfort outside of that bubble you know if you go to work and now you're called she again like it's not that anyone in the lesbian community, when they call the butches boys or he or or have male pronoun, pronouns or have male um, nicknames for them, I mean, everyone understands that that's a shorthand. It's it's a cultural nod to their masculinity. It's not a literal you are male. But it felt 
comfortable for me inside those circles. But the more I was being called he, boy, you know, um, by male names, that contrast of that feeling better for me and then going out in the world where other people weren't um, referring to me by male pronouns and names, it, it, that started to feel more uncomfortable for me. And then at that time, there were a number of different things going on in my life at that time, um, like the birth of my daughter, the breakdown of my long-term relationship. I went through a major career change, um, and a gay man was murdered in Vancouver at that time as well, which was very uh, – he lived two blocks away from me, and he it was – heartbreaking and very distressing for the entire gay and lesbian community in Vancouver at that time. And all of that weighing on me, I wasn't in my best frame of mind. And I was in my living room with my girlfriend at the time watching a documentary on TV about trans kids. And they're just their interviews with the kids sounded so much like my experience of gender dysphoria that and back then it was called gender identity disorder but i don't think they even called it that in the in the documentary i think they were just talking about trans kids but their experience was so similar to mine that i thought oh well now that that's it like that's that's my experience and they're saying that when you experience this that means that you are a trans person and i thought oh well then I guess I'm not a, actually a lesbian after all. I guess this isn't about masculine or feminine or masculine femaleness. This is, you know, because this, they're describing the experience and this is definitely my experience. And so they're saying on mainstream television that, that when you have these feelings, it means you are a trans person as a completely se separate category of personhood. And so it completely flipped my identity almost instantly and wow. I started to buy into this idea that, okay, now I have this answer. And I started reading a little bit about it, you know, read uh, Jameson Green's book about his journey and, and realization that he was, you know, trans man. And did you say anything to your girlfriend in that moment on the couch? I did. I said, I just kind of said, that's me. And she said, I know. <laughs> and oh. so, so she seemed to validate it and, and, and more and more, um, butch lesbians in the community were were starting to transition at that time and and, and some of the butches were saying like that like there was a, a photographer in um, a butch lesbian photographer in vancouver who did a whole show about um, gender identity disorder and so that was getting discussed a little more in the community so it just seemed to sort of presented to butches at that time and probably still that you here's your two options you can be you can be a butch lesbian and, and and have this condition, or you can transition and and have this condition. And um, it seemed to be presented that when you changed your body and transition, that it offered you relief from the dysphoria. And um, so that was my my motivation for doing it was to try to just stop that that cognitive dissonance that I was constantly struggling with. What was the assessment process like for you? It was the beginnings of what we call the affirmation model. It was... And what um, year was this? This would be so like the mid-2000s or so? Yeah, it would have been about, I think, 2006 when I started the whole process. Um, okay. So there was an assessment process. I was assessed over a period of, of several months. Um, I don't remember. It's a bit of a blur for me now. Um but we did talk about just my childhood experiences of gender dysphoria and what my goals were for transitioning. And um, we did talk about some of the risks and 
I think that's all I really remember about the assessment process. Um, Do you know I how know long other, it went on for? Are we talking months? Like It was uh, about two or three months, I think. Okay. Is what I remember. So it might have been like around like maybe six visits. I may not have the, all of the details exactly right, but it was something something like that. It was several visits over several months, at least a couple of months for for the for testosterone. Um, but before um, I had any surgery, I had to go see a psychologist for a separate assessment, just you know, sort of general mental health. And I remember filling out a bunch of sort of screeners, and so I wasn't diagnosed with anything other than gender identity disorder and depression. And it was, we all felt that the depression was as a result of um, the gender dysphoria. Did the transition help the depression? It did. It, de- it definitely helped with, it, I mean, it helped with some things and it, it complicates things in other ways. I mean, it's, um, it did help with just that ruminate, constant rumination of am I male, am I female? It just makes me feel more like um, I can just be myself and because as you know as a masculine appearing female I definitely you know every time it caused me a lot of anxiety going out in public because there weren't many times where I could go out in public where someone makes you know some sort of homophobic comment or you know guys screaming out of their car windows you know fucking dyke or whatever like you know see it's it weighs on a person and so I do feel some relief that I do feel more comfortable in my own skin. And it, so I, it helped me to just kind of relax and settle into myself. But that's, that's also not without a lot of work to, to do that and continue to work on my mental health. And so it helped with some things. But I mean, I still, I know that I'm not, like, I'm not confused about what biological sex is. So it, it doesn't completely eliminate that, that rumination. Like, I still, I still wonder, like, what does my DSD mean in the, in the whole bigger picture of what is my biological sex? And is that related to gender dysphoria? And I've just become really curious as a person and as a clinician of just wondering, well, what is gender dysphoria? Like, because everyone has their own sort of pet theory about what is it? You know, people say, well, it's trauma or it's, it's OCT or it's body dysmorphia or it's uh, paraphilia. Like, every, everyone has their own sort of pet theory about it, including trans people, because trans people have to have some sort of narrative to hang their hat on and, and just get on with their lives. And, and there's a lot of infighting in the trans community about what is this experience and how, how do we define it and understand it. And um, it's, ca- it's so divisive both inside and outside the trans community and inside the clinical community and the community at large, I really, I really want the clinical community to take a stand on this and, and look at the evidence and give us the best, you know, the best, what is the best evidence and, and what does the best evidence say gender dysphoria is? I really feel like instead of, I think we've made a huge mistake turning this all into queer theory as a queer theory movement rather than rather than a, um, a science-based medical understanding of gender dysphoria because it's because there's the, not everyone is ever going to agree with queer theory um, and so <laughs> no? it's, really? it's, so, it's so, uh, so so easily mainstreamed um I so mean, it, it just it, it seems like we're, yeah, we're, we've yeah. built this whole castle onto sand, right? Whereas if it, like I know people don't they say, well, we don't want to pathologize this, we don't want to stigmatize it, but 
there's lots of conditions out there um and our our goal is to you know to educate and and destigmatize certain conditions not completely deny that the condition exists and i i just so i'm just curious like i think it would do i think it would do all of us a lot of good if we could just land on what do we know about this what is it as a clinical condition and not define it according to any political movement or or ideology and what do we know what studies are out there? Because another thing that happens is there are so many different studies floating around and you can, you know, no matter what quote unquote side you're on, you can cherry pick your way through them. And some of them have tiny sample groups and they rely on self-reporting and all this stuff. So what, what sort of data set do you believe or rely on? It is really confusing because there are so many studies. There's a lot of poorly designed studies and there's some you know well designed studies and very contradictory information so uh, so it is difficult i do think so in terms of different ways that they've looked at this they've they've um, tried genetic studies um, they've tried um, brain scan studies they've they've done like twin studies looking for you know genetics um and and then of course if you go back you know to the work of you know went back before queer theory took over this was mostly um, the field of uh, of psychologists and so when I looked back through the through the research I went back to like the eighties when when Blanchard and, and Zucker and, um, and and others were studying this from a psychological point of view and um, having looked at all of it and I'm willing to change my mind as new information comes up um, and I would really like to press on WPATH and other organizations to really review the, the literature and, and, and nail this down. But I, th I do think looking back through it that our strongest evidence to date that makes the most sense to my experience and others that I've kind of witnessed in the community and community dynamics, I think Blanchard's typology thus far is the best we've got. I don't think it's perfect and I don't think it's complete, but I think it's the best we have as far as the quality of studies. And I think some of the medical studies since then support his typology. And we have what to be is, really What is his typology? So what his typology that? is that there were, they were seeing back in the, in the 80s in the clinic in Ontario, they were seeing primarily two types of people showing up wanting to do this exchange. So it was um, young boys um, with gender dysphoria who had Sounds like the kind of gender dysphoria I had that started at a very young age and was sort of persistent and consistent throughout life. So it was it was those boys being brought to clinics by their parents and and middle-aged men. And one of the trends that they noticed was that when they did cohort studies on the childhood onset type of gender dysphoria, and I think there's something like seven studies about this now, their there's stats are a little bit different, but the conclusions are all the same, that when you follow those little kids with gender dysphoria through childhood and you, and you just support them and love them and not really intervene, that most of those kids through puberty do they use the word desist. So they that that sense of cross-sex identification just kind of sheds off. And most of those kids turn out to be gay or lesbian. So it was those kids being brought to clinics. And that's why they had a, a sort of a just just love to support them and see what happens approach with those kids knowing that most of them are going to figure it out and sort it out. And the small percentage of those that didn't outgrow it 
and it wasn't really responding to any kind of psychotherapy. And if it was distressing enough, some of those were the ones that were medically transitioning as a palliative solution to their distress. The other cohort of middle-aged men that were showing up to clinics were primarily heterosexual or bisexual uh, men. And so the topology is that those are two completely different phenomenon and two completely different developmental pathways. Um, so one being more connected to a homosexual sexual orientation and that gender dysphoria is somehow part of the psychological developmental aspects of a gay or lesbian identity that normally that sheds off. Um, and then the other being um, what Blanchard described as autogynephilia, which is a paraphilia in which a heterosexual orientation inverts onto itself, where the because male sexuality is a lot more target-based, more so than female sexuality. Females tend to be more relational. Male sexuality, in terms of just how their sexual orientation seems to be wired, is they're very target-based. And so the target can be displaced rather than on you know heterosexual males having um, erotic targets of females, that sometimes that gets displaced, and that's what's called a paraphilia. Um, and that could be placed on anything. I mean, you hear about shoe fetishes or. Oh, so that's what, what paraphilia right? means. I was going to ask you that. Yeah, because, so okay. that's what paraphilia oh, so means. It can, means that the erotic target. You can be target, attracted to anything. So, like, okay. I mean, and I've theory. heard a theory that, and, and, and I hope this is true, but this is what I've heard is that, that for every kind of target, like a paraphilia, that there can be like an auto auto meaning self, so it can turn on self. So if for, for you know, because heterosexual target is you know, my sexual attraction is females, that that target can be reversed and inverted into I'm attracted to the idea of myself as female. So I've heard this about other paraphilias as well, like someone who, like in theory, who has like, say, a fetish for shoes, they could in theory have an auto, whatever that's called, fetish for shoes, where they eroticize themselves as a shoe and would want to dress up as a shoe. So it's, it's, so if that kind of makes this, sense, how I would make an furry, is, this, is this how we end up with furries as a as a cohort? Not to derail this conversation, but is I that, don't know is, what is that's the furry about. thing considered a paraphilia? I don't know if that's officially considered a paraphilia or if that's an inversion on. I don't know. That's dark territory. You know, yeah, is no, that, sorry, we like, don't, we is don't that get to is that bestiality? <laughs> you know, inverted to self. I don't. I don't know. I think but it's there, probably I mean, more the, fun and playful than that. But yeah, this is like a cosplay kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Just, anyway, just so, so the, yes. Okay, go ahead. The, the two part typology that was that was primarily who they were seeing coming to clinics, and that has become very. It, it, Blanchard well, has become a swear word in the trans community. Autogynephilia is a verboten as a term. Yes, we're not supposed to talk about that, and. But the, it, but I feel like the homosexual subtype of of gender dysphoria that he talked about completely is like it hits the nail on the head as far as my experience. So, so my frustration with dumping the whole typology just because I mean I I understand the people with AGP I understand conceptually why they wouldn't want that widely known in the public. Um, it's not great PR. You know, it, it's much better PR to just brand this all as trans and and bold and beautiful. Um, so I it's, I get that, but by dumping the whole typology out, 
you've also they've also denied me the opportunity to understand the gender dysphoria that I experienced. You know, it, nobody sat me down. You know, when I was going through this, saying, "Hey, did you know that there's this type of gender dysphoria that that tends to only happen in gay and lesbian people? That a lot of gay and lesbian people feel it, especially as children, and most outgrow it." And and pro- providing me with that education actually would have been helpful for that cognitive process that I was struggling with to just sort out why but would it have experiencing? been helpful to you when you actually transitioned because you were an adult it still would have provided me information in which to make sense of my experience even if i decided to transition or not transition and i do question like if i had been given accurate evidence-based information to understand my experience would i have felt the same drive to transition i don't know i mean i it, it's hard to say in hindsight but i think it's possible that what I needed was just because a lot of that cognitive dissonance that I f- felt I continued to experience because I did still didn't understand my experience. So it made me more comfortable in my skin, but it, it, I still struggled and I conceptually with just trying to understand what is this? Like why on earth would someone think this and um, experience this? So the expo- this, the typology made sense to me and it, it, it just gave me somewhere to land in understanding why I felt this. And I, I do worry how many kids out there or young people out there think that they're trans because they had this childhood gender dysphoria and nobody is telling them, well, wait and see, right? Because this is what we know about this type of gender dysphoria. And it, it might, like odds are that this means that you're gay or lesbian. Like nobody's teaching these kids. I mean, maybe somebody is, but in the in the informed consent model, that isn't the information that's being taught to people. And I do think just that information alone could change the tra- trajectory of what someone chooses to do. Um, and is this coming out of homophobia? It's just remarkable that the the you know gay rights movement has gotten as far as it has i mean it's completely mainstreamed we don't you know often we don't even think about it but and but yet there would be a stigma against suggesting to a kid that they might be gay like it's better to be trans than gay it's well that's a, certainly a fear that i'm hearing from the gay and lesbian community i mean and even with my family um i mean i have a good relationship with my family now but there was a time you know when i was um you know, identified as a lesbian and 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 a butch lesbian. That my parents and my community, I did experience quite a bit of homophobia there. So one of the first things that my dad said to me when I told him that I wanted to transition was, "Well, that makes much a lot more sense than the gay thing. I don't know why you don't all do that." So if if people think that you know we live in in a you know North America, we have freedoms that other countries don't have. We don't want to think of ourselves as being like Iran, where we're converting all our gay people. But we are to some extent. And I'm not saying that all trans people are just secretly gay people. But due to misinformation, and and then add that layer of individual families or individual communities that don't feel comfortable with butch lesbians or very highly effeminate gay men even the, the gay and lesbian community doesn't always isn't always very warm and fuzzy towards especially effeminate really effeminate gay men i think it i think it's a mistake to think that consciously or unconsciously a lot of a lot of things happen at an unconscious level that some people it's like you know what if, if someone is so effeminate that they can't find anyone to date because a lot of gay men don't want to date really effeminate gay men like they, they don't they're getting bullied they're you know they're afraid um 
for their lives in some cases. They're they're not fitting in socially. I can totally understand why it, it might be easier for some some people to transition and and find find some peace in that. And we're mistaking ourselves if we're thinking that homophobia doesn't exist, you know, like like it does in Iran in some communities and families. Would you call yourself an activist? <laughs> Are you a different <laughs> kind of trans activist? I'm a different kind of trans activist. I just I because I feel disturbed what's happening, especially in I mean, it started as a concern what's happening in the clinical world. I just feel like the clinical community has become very captured by queer theory, and I think that's a, a mistake, and I think it's it's doing harm. And it's it becomes very hard to even interpret a lot of the scientific data when you have that mindset. So, for example, if we were to do MRI studies on, on trans people to try to find this um, holy grail of some biomarker for gender dysphoria, if we don't believe in the topology, and we think that a trans person is just a trans person like any other trans persons, and that it all has the same developmental pathway and the same um, origin or same cause. So we're going to line up a bunch of trans people. Let's say we line up 100 trans people and scan their brains. I don't know how meaningful that data is going to be. If, if, if the typology, if Blanche's typology is correct, that AGP and homosexual transsexualism is are two completely separate things, that only converge on the point of, I want to change my body. But psychologically, they're two completely different things. You can't lump them all together and scan their brains to find a biomarker. So all of I, feel, I just feel like in the last 30 years, so much of our data to try to understand this condition is junk science because we aren't, we aren't asking the right questions and we're not um, controlling for sexual orientation in a lot of those studies. Do you have a lot of young people come into the clinic, or did you when you were working there, with data in hand, studies in hand that they have found that they believe proves to you and to themselves who they are? Not usually. Uh, some of them had done, you know, a bit of uh, a bit of online searching and found, you know, because all this information is kind of public now, right? Because of internet, so some of them would be familiar with some of the brain scan studies or the genetic studies. And I just, there's a lot of, because what you hear a lot of, like, if you try to, um, you know, cite Blanchard and Bailey, et cetera, you hear a lot of people say, well, according to this other thing that I read in pink news or whatever it is, you're totally wrong. And this proves that you're wrong. Like, what do you do with that? It's hard, um, you know, it, you know, because a lot of people have just, just completely dismissed Blanchard and 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 Zucker just because they've heard in the community that they're bad, you know, without necessarily knowing all the history or without actually looking at their work and really understanding it, have just dismissed them because that because the community has dismissed them. And and so I, I had heard of, of Blanchard and Zucker years ago, wasn't really familiar with their work, but heard their names and heard their names cast in a very negative light and and hadn't really looked at their work with with an open mind and and I'm glad that I'm glad that I did and I wish I had sooner. So you have started an organization how how, how organized are are you around this or are you just kind of mostly out there talking at this point? We collected some people as as we go I'm certainly not alone in the community as far as um rejecting the the what's now called gender ideology the queer theory based understanding of of gender dysphoria a lot of us um have never bought into that and or others did but are now realizing um the harms so 
those are tends to be the people that, that come to us and reach out to us saying, you know, thank you for doing this. You know, you're, you're providing our half of the community with, with a voice to just want to look at the science and, and, um, and to not deny biology to you know, a lot of us are kind of have been watching in horror some of the politics play out and how there are different warring factions you know like the the, the queer theorists battling with radical feminists and and these very um ideological battles um that are playing out and 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 then really hard hard conversations like what do we do with with um sports and I know I was going to ask you do you have a solution um I don't have a solution but I I I think when we don't have a queer theory way of thinking about this um most people in my circles would would call themselves you know the homosexual transsexuals who completely understand their biology and, and and understand that biology is relevant in it's not relevant when I go and buy a loaf of bread, but it's relevant in, you know, in regards to my medical health, it, you know, like it, it matters as far as like what goes on our medical records so that if there was an emergency that our care providers know what our biology is. So, and I understand, you know, biology does matter in terms of physical abilities, you know, like sports. So there are a lot of us that are willing to just have reality-based conversations about these things and try to find fair solutions. Yeah. It seems like this word community is becoming a misnomer. There's going to be two communities, at least. There always has been. There, there's always been two very different camps within the trans community and and the clinical community is what I'm realizing. These two very ideological, ideologically different groups and we just don't interact much. So I, w- I think that's why I've been so oblivious to a lot of this um, because I've just been off doing my own thing and I've got my own little circle of friends that think similarly as I do and um, I was kind of oblivious to how much queer theory has taken over and how much is driving um, a lot of hostility towards the trans community and towards um, the gay and lesbian community as well. So you have a group called Gender Dysphoria Alliance. What are your goals there? Our goals um, are primarily to to educate. We've been wanting to um, just provide our part of the community a voice because it, it seems like those with the large, loudest voice in the trans community are those that come from the queer theory perspective. And we felt, because a lot of us on the other side haven't been um, as politically active, we feel like our voice just hasn't been heard in the whole debate. And so we wanted there to be, um, it serves a di- different purposes. So one is we just want people to feel like there's a someplace that they can they can go if they want to to tell their story. And so we tell stories in a, in a few different ways. We do have a, a blog. So if, if people want prefer to just write their story out, um, we'll publish it um, and just get it out there. And we also have um, a podcast called Transparency, where we just have opened up the, the dialogue. They're fairly informal conversations. The original concept was, you know, as 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 friends, we have certain conversations, you know around a campfire or, or the kitchen table that look quite different from 
sound quite different from what's being talked about in the public sphere about everything trans. And so our original concept for the for transparency was let's just get together and have those conversations recorded and we'll just put them out there so that people hear a different kind of trans conversation. And um, and then we do sometimes invite people in. Um, so we've talked to, you know, like Dr. Littman and, and Dr. Blanchard and just to have very non-confrontational nuanced uh heterodox conversations on the topic and um and and so we have been growing pretty quickly we've had quite a few trans people reach out to us saying yes i you know i i feel the same way and i'm really concerned about the direction the politics have gone in and and the amount of hostility that is generating and how divisive it's been and um and then we we do want to branch out so we tried to, to provide our best interpretation of the evidence as, as far as what gender dysphoria is and our next i think our next project and goal is to create some other educational materials like a um, series of short videos and printed materials so we still have room to grow as far as the educational piece and then the other um side of, of what we do is is advocacy and and um and lobbying so we have um done some lobbying um government agencies uh, on things like um, certain bills that are being passed, um, like conversion, the conversion therapy bans, for example. We just want to make sure that those bills are worded in such a way that it's it's not interfering with ethical exploratory psychotherapy for gender dysphoria. Mm, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a whole other... Yeah, that's a topic. That could be a whole other really podcast. Exploring. Yeah, no, I think that's, <laughs> that's really important, actually. It's kind of like the, these CRT battles. It's like, well, no, uh, <laughs> you don't you don't really want to legislate that at that level. Anyway, um, all right, this is my last question, and it's probably unanswerable, and it's incredibly reductive, but what percentage of the population do you think is trans? <laughs> that is hard to say. Um Part of why it's hard to say is because when we say trans, I don't think we're always talking about gender dysphoria. I think, you know, when we're looking at a percentage of the population that has a type of gender dysphoria, I think it's a very tiny. Um, But when we call it trans and have politicized it and promoted it as we have, I think those numbers are starting to inflate artificially because lots of people say they're trans who don't have gender dysphoria. They're saying it for political reasons, or just uh, if whatever their motivation reasons. is. But even even um, clinical bodies and organizations are saying that gender dysphoria isn't necessary to be trans and isn't right. necessary to medicalize. So uh, I don't know what trans even means at this point. Okay, so what percentage? Back when we called this transsexual, what percentage was it? Do you think like point zero? What like? one percent less than one percent just really like what's your instinct obviously this is not my, not my best guess this. is probably like one percent would be my best guess but i i think that i saw a survey recently where they surveyed um i can't remember if it was like high school students it was school age minors anyway and they i think they said something like 23 percent were now saying that they identified as some type of like under the trans umbrella, whether non-binary or demisexual, or so I mean those numbers because because trans is now a political entity. It's it's not and a cultural entity. It, it's no longer about you have a clinical condition and you seek treatment for that condition. 
I think that percentage of, of those with a clinical condition is very tiny, but we've marketed everything queer and trans in such a way that it's become very attractive to people and heterosexuals can now opt into under the queer umbrella by saying, well, I'm, I'm a demisexual or I'm you know, whatever neo pronoun, you know, they, they want to, to assign. So it, it's, I don't even know how we now measure any of these numbers of you know, how many trans people there are. Right. Although I guess unless we're talking about medicalization, does it really matter? Like what's the damage? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, as far as political movements go, I guess every generation has had its political movements. Um, you know, the the mods and the punks and the hippies, and so I, I I could be argued, I guess, that how is this any different than that? Except that I don't remember you know the punks or the mods or the hippies um, having politically captured, ideologically captured our institutions. <laughs> to this yes, extent. there was back when the ACLU was captured by goths. Yes, that was a strange <laughs> but moment I, in time. I don't know if you're familiar with just on you know. I, Perhaps a final note is I don't know if you've read the the, the WPAS Standards of Care version 8 that has been released as a draft for public input. It's open until the 16th for public input. Um, They now include a chapter on eunuch identifying people or eunuch dysphoria. Oh, yeah, I saw something about this. Mm -hmm. So it just seems to be that the trans umbrella is collecting people as it goes. Right. Wow. Well, certainly this podcast is uh, collecting uh, trans-related episodes, uh, for better or for worse. Well, um, (laughs) this has been outstanding, Aaron. Thank you so much. You're incredibly insightful and articulate and um, really just incredibly sharp on this topic. So I'm very, very grateful. Um, Well, thank you. I I was grateful for the opportunity to just have a chat with you and talk about this stuff and... And just open up the conversation, right? It's, it's a very complicated, multi-layered, multifaceted um, topic. And, and I just appreciate that the conversation is opening up more to different points of view. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. That was my conversation with Aaron Kimberly. Aaron has worked as a mental health clinician since 2008 in hospital and community settings. In 2021, he founded the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, which aims, in his words, to educate about different types of gender dysphoria from an evidence base without the lens of political ideology. He is also the co-host of the Transparency Podcast. You've been listening to the Unspeakable Podcast. I've talked a lot on this episode, so I'll go light on the sign-off here. I'll only say again that you can support the show by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can also make a one-time donation of any amount by visiting the show's webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donate button. You can also leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts, ideally positive. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Until then, thanks for listening. See you next time.